Well, a sad day at Speakola. We've lost our first podcast guest, first guest who has passed away since I began the podcast in 2020, and it's Ron Joseph, the great North Melbourne administrator, a football person, and he was on the episode of the podcast that featured a eulogy, Ron Joseph's eulogy to Lou Richards, which we put out in the middle of 2022. He was a terrific man to chat to. I spent over two hours in his hotel room talking about the speech, but then also just talking generally about footy as well. And so I'm going to replay his Speakola episode here. And there were so many great footy stories that I recorded as well. And if you're interested in the more sports-related stuff, Ron Joseph's memories and yarns about lifting North Melbourne up, from cellar dweller to premier then go over to good one wilson i'm going to put it up as audio on the good one wilson page so that's goodonewilson.substack.com sign up for free or sign up as a paid subscriber there if you pay at either speakola or good one wilson you get six months free membership at the other and certainly thank you to everyone who's joined up at news.speakola.com, which is the newsletter and membership hub for this speeches project. But now, in memory of Ron Joseph, here's last year's episode replayed. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the government yet. Tony Wilson. Ron Joseph, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure, Tony. Now tell us, you've written one of my favourite footy speeches. It was a eulogy for Lou Richards, delivered in 2017. And we get a few international listeners to the podcast. Who is Lou Richards? How would you describe him? Well, I would say that he was probably one of the most colourful characters in football for the last 60 or 70 years as a player of the great club Collingwood who were traditionally successful, huge supporter base, proud club. Lou had a great um, family association through the Panhams and, uh, and then, of course, he went on to Channel 7. He was writing for our major daily newspaper, the Herald Sun, and, uh, I mean, he, was, he just became a huge personality promoted by The Sun and promoted by Channel 7 in the life of Melbourne and particularly in the football life of Melbourne, which is uh, very important to most Melburnians, most Victorians. And he has this aura. Do you remember the first time you met him? Have you got a Lou Richards meeting story? I've got a Lou Richards meeting story, but I don't think Lou would ever remember meeting me. There used to be a show on TV and they would tape it of a Sunday night. And in those days, I was a mad South Melbourne supporter. And I remember going there as a school kid. 
I reckon I would have been about 15 or 16, there was a guy called Alwyn Kurtz and his son, Michael, was at the school that I was at and he would always get us tickets for these, uh, this show because they'd always want an audience there. I can remember Lou was there one day, as one, of the, one night as one of the speakers and uh, I got up and asked him a question about my hero, Bob Skilton. I don't think the tape would be around now, but I had some schoolmates as I got up pulling me by the pants and trying to get me to sit down and telling me I was a fool and everything else. So that was my first... Uh, and Lou, Lou gave a sort of a nice, polite reply to my schoolboy question. But uh, And then it was years later that I got to know him through Channel 7 and the grand final breakfast and him coming to North Melbourne functions. And, he, you know, in, when North started to uh, fire up in the 70s as a, you know, a very successful club in that era... I mean, Lou, in his own right, loved it all at North. You know, even though he was a Collingwood man, he, uh, you know, he really did enjoy, and so did Edna, the the time that he spent at North Melbourne. Well, that was one of the surprising things in the eulogy. You mentioned this relationship with North Melbourne, and I always think of him as a Collingwood person, but you said through the trainer family who were friendly with Edna that he was really quite present at North. Is there any chance in that 77 grand final that he called and, and there's the Twiggy Dunn goal, um, is there any chance he was barracking for it not to go through? Oh, no. <laughs> no, he was always a Collingwood supporter. There's no question about that. But he loved what North were, and he enjoyed being a part of it. And a lifelong friendship for you once, he be, once you become part of his life in the 1970s and asked to deliver the eulogy. And that, in fact, becomes the start of the eulogy, where you, 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 you get the nod from Lou that you're going to be one of the speakers. Can you tell us how that really happened? It's, it's such a funny story how you tell it in the speech. How were you told you were going to be a speaker? Um, Lou's daughter rang me yeah it was really through uh, Fiona that she asked me if I'd speak and uh, I sort of just straight away said oh yes that'd be lovely you know without really thinking too much about it and then it became a um, state funeral that went from there and then once I'd said yes and I thought well hell I'm gonna have to put some time into this and give it some thought yes so she's asked you to speak at the funeral. You make a construction about Lou asking you to speak at the funeral. Yes. Lou had done some tough years, hadn't he? He'd, he'd had a... Oh, yeah. I found it very sad because, you know, the last 10 years of his life, he was in a retirement place. You know, here was this giant of a personality in Melbourne. Most days you'd see on the back page of the paper... Or that night you'd see on television. And here he was in the last 10 years of his life confined to a room. And, you know, it was a nice, as, as these places can be, these retirement places can be. And he was looked after. I'm not sort of saying that he wasn't. But it was just sad to go there and visit him and see how his life had being curtailed and uh, became so limited. And Ed, Edna had become ill. You know, Lou was really unapproachable 
for the two or three years that he cared for Edna. But then when he finished up in this retirement place and I'd, you know, I'd go and visit him and uh, it was just always sad to see him in that situation. After Edna died, you could pick him up and take him out to lunch. I can remember we took him for a couple of... I had an old retired school teacher down at Inverloch and uh, there were a couple of occasions where I'd take Lou down to Inverloch with me for the drive and uh, he'd always regale the working man's club with a speech and, you know, wherever you took him, people would swarm over him and want his order. And Lou loved that, but, you know, it was a sad time in his life, you know. And, and did he suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's at the end? Like, did you start to lose contact with him? Uh, uh, no, I think that, no, I reckon... I think it was a respiratory, as I remember, issue that took him in the end. And he was definitely, you know, he definitely slowed up. But he wasn't, you know, he could remember. And he had a comment to make about the commentators of that time and whether he liked them or he didn't like them or... But it was all, he was always, he never lost his humour. That was one great thing, you know. He, he'd warm up after you'd been in the room with him for 10 or 15 minutes. And I used to, he loved oysters. And I used to go to the South Melbourne market and buy him a couple of dozen oysters, which he'd, he'd sort of have the first half dozen straight away, first dozen straight away. And then he'd have the, the, the other dozen that night for tea. But... He, he, he sort of warmed up to the whole thing after you'd been there for a quarter of an hour, yeah. And so how accurate is that opening chat? You know, all the people I know is dead. You're going to have to speak, Ronnie. Uh, oh, he would have said that to me, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, he would have definitely uh, said that to me. I don't, I'm not so sure whether he said, you're going to have to speak. <laughs> um, I think I might have made that up, but... I can re- always remember him saying to me, uh, wasn't so much in relation to his funeral, but him sort of saying to me along the way as I'd go in and out of there that, you know, well, most of the people I know are dead, you know. And you gave it to Jeff Kennett there. Was it a state funeral? A lot of Yeah, uh, well, I'm his... not sure whether I made <laughs> that up too. I might have uh, had a bit of licence there to sort of try and kick off with a bit of... Uh, humour but um, it it was lose humour that was the thing that I was trying to get across uh, that he he still had a great way of looking at life and the people that he'd been associated with and you had a lot of stories to pick from I mean he he, he, as you say he's one of the colourful characters who lived this very big life in in Melbourne media. Did you have one that you left out? Have you got favourite Lou Richards at the breakfast stories? The oh, the, 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 oh, there were some... Because <laughs> the breakfast would have the Prime Minister and the Premier and and various federal and state ministers. I mean, the, the head table at the North Melbourne breakfast through the 70s was as... As good as you'd ever get, and that was because uh, you know all the pollies uh, wanted to be there. They'd know they were going to be on television, and it's a great tragedy that North 
you know, I don't know what happened to it, but they finished up letting it go to the AFL. I, I don't think it's the same function today as it was back then. But I, I, I still think my favourite story was the one that I did tell in the eulogy when um, Sir Henry Winnicke visited the pub. I, I was sort of just standing off to the side and... You know, I saw him go up to Sir Henry Winnicky and, you know, with great sort of respect, he said to him, oh, look, Sir Henry, he said, I've got to um, I've got to go and tell Edna that you're here, that we've got royalty in the hotel. And, you know, it was all quite genuine. And then, you know, I was still in the same position when he came back five minutes <laughs> later and said that Edna was in, had her hair in rollers and she wasn't coming down to meet her. I mean, I just laughed and laughed at that, and it was an absolutely true story. And quite apart from Lou, what was it like for you handling the Prime Minister and these sorts of things? Have you got favourite stories of running this breakfast? Oh, yeah, there's some great stories of running the breakfast. And I used to say to Lou, you know, because the breakfast could have dull spots, you know, and so as soon as I sensed a dull... I'd never sat on the head table... But I would always be next to Lou, and if ever I sensed that there was dull, a dull spot, I used to say, Lou, Lou, get up there and say something funny, you know. And Lou used to sort of look at me and, well, what am I going to say, you know? But he'd always get up and crack a joke, and, and I mean, he had this, this huge long table of politicians where he could really. Um, attack anyone he didn't attack them but he he was very very funny and very very good and the breakfast grew from you know 300 people to in the end we were getting over a thousand there and it grew from they paid five dollars a ticket to get bacon and eggs and an orange juice and a bottle of champagne on the table to, um, you know, in the end you had corporate tables paying, well, when I left, $3,000 a table, you know. I mean, it became very, very successful. And it was successful because of Lou Richards and its head table and the, the way that Lou brought all that together. And um, no, they were great days, great days. And, and in terms of... His personality, like he, we saw the guy who would make the bets as to whether he'd drink out of someone's footy boot and clean someone's car with a toothbrush. You know, he had the the sense of the stunt and the twinkle in the eye. Was he was he a seasoned professional as well? Did you see the kind of work that went into it, or the what, what was the the inner workings of Lou? Was he ambitious? Was he uh, you know wh- how would you describe him? Well, the, I mean the most significant thing I think about him was that he just had a wonderful humour and he knew that he was, people loved him, they loved him because of his humour. Uh, Eddie Maguire and uh, a few people, um, Tony Jones, I think they sort of made mention at the service, at his service, uh, how he'd get very nervous uh, and he'd always want endorsement of uh, what he'd done or what he said and and he and, and he did he did that was pretty true but he any function that he went to he always knew that he was going to have to perform and he would he would get into that 
Lou Richards mode that we saw come through the papers and through the television screens, his personality would, as soon as there was an audience, Lou would take over. Certainly at North, that was... The, the North people loved him, whether it was a, you know, a ball or an auction or whatever. Whenever we had a function, Lou would know that, you know, North were going to use him and he was going to get up on the microphone and uh, people were going to be entertained by him. And tell us about going to World of Sport. Do you have a memory of getting in there and seeing them in action? Oh, yeah. I mean, you used to love it because it just had such a fantastic atmosphere in there you know and there all these champion ex-champion footballers whether it's Frank Sedgman from tennis or the bloke that was there that played bowls and Bruce Andrew and Skeeter Coughlin and Neil Roberts it was just a uh, but they were blokes that I'd seen play and World of Sport was a riot. You know, they'd have pies in their hand and <laughs> the comedy that went on between them and with Uncle Doug, who they were always having a crack at. Yeah, I don't know how Ron Casey did it, but he kept it all together and when Case barked, they all obeyed, you know, and they'd all come into line. And well, I remember this uh, picture of them all just smoking off to the side. Now, yeah. when you see the footage and you tell the story of them lighting up yeah. the grease paper that they were reading, this, that Uncle Doug was reading the script oh, off. That, and that, that was true. Have you got another one? Have you got another thing that you just remember seeing in there one morning that was interesting or, or memorable? Look, I can't, I can't think of one now. I suppose, you know, that, I mean, seeing him uh, light the cigarette paper and uh, Uncle Doug so intensely reading off it and then the next thing it was in flames and, and it, you know, I mean, it just brought the whole room down. You can imagine this butcher paper in a television studio f- up in flames and Uncle Doug was <laughs> horrified. They were all funny blokes and they fed off one another. So you get the nod to be the speaker at the funeral. Tell us about writing the speech. What, what did you do? Well, I I just knew that I'd have to give it some thought and I you know, I mean I just was constantly on my mind that I had to speak and that, you know, it was going to be a state funeral and uh, it was gonna be televised, it was gonna be a big event and uh, I'd sort of, you know, really kept myself in the background on all those sorts of things over my time at North. And so I, I can remember Francis Trainer, who was the son of Tony and Shirley. I I never had any computer skills or anything like that, but I it was getting closer close to the date, and I knew that I had to sort of get something down on paper. And uh, and I, I just sat down with Francis one night at at uh, his place in Brighton, and it just. Pretty much the whole eulogy just came off the top of my head. And I can remember Francis saying to me at some stage, he said something like, gee, you've obviously thought about this. And I probably had, but the first time I expressed what I was thinking and everything was the night that I went to Francis. And then from, you know, that might have been about a week before the service, I suppose I played around with it at different times and tied it up here and tied it up there. I remember 
Gabby Trainer, who's now a commissioner at the AFL, and Frances's sister. I remember showing it to her, and she tidied up a bit, just expressed some words a bit better for me. I mean, the thing that I've found, I've spoken at a few funerals, but it's not hard to do if you you really know the subject. It's very hard to do if you're not. You've got to be, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm, uh, emotionally connected. Yeah, you've got to be emotionally connected. I, I remember that I... I did a speech for, I did a eulogy for Laurie Dwyer and I did one for Ian Munro who was the master that um, had retired down at Inverloch and who I'd taken Lou down to see at different times and Lou's. But I was always comfortable with them because I knew the person really well and I was able to tell their story pretty accurately and with with an intensity that reflected who they were as people. And would you have made a list of the stories you could tell about Lou and then gone, oh, I want one from The Breakfast, I want one from World of Sport, I want one from Later in Life, I want one about Edna because I want to mention Edna. Is, how would you have structured oh, it? I, I knew that I had to sort of try and... Because Lou being the person that he was, I knew that I had to kick off with some humour... That was the most important part. I knew that I was always going to tell. I, I, I was always going to tell the story about the butcher paper at Channel Seven, World of Sport, because I mean I'd seen that with my own eyes and just marvelled at it and saw the humour and the way everyone reacted. So it was a natural story to tell. I was there in the room five yards away when Sir Henry Winnicky was there at the pub so I was always going to tell that story and then of course the breakfast uh, <laughs> you know I mean there were probably so many funny things with the breakfast I mean you know they, uh, after the breakfast we we would go into a room and have, have, have a, a, a drink after I'd usually I'd always have a table for my mates at that I went to school with, you know, a mate of mine, uh, Charlie Fellows, who I went to school with, who always come to the breakfast. I mean, Bob Hawke, he never didn't know Bob Hawke from a bar of soap, but he still regales himself to this day on, on, you know, after the breakfast and in this room, this ante room where they'd all gather after, after the function. And... He's met Bob Hawke and he's having a talk to him. And then at about one o'clock when everyone's about to head off down to the MCG to watch the grand final, Bob Hawke says to Charlie, he said, um, what about we go and have lunch at, in Carlton? So <laughs> there was Charlie, <laughs> never met Bob Hawke in his life, having lunch with Bob Hawke, the Prime Minister in a restaurant, I'm not sure that you might have been, he might have been Prime Minister, he might have been the President of the ACTU, but I mean he was pretty famous anyway, as famous as Lou, and uh, here's Charlie having lunch with Bob Hawke on his own, yeah. I like the fact that you found the way of, of showing Lou's wit through the line he, he, he used against 
Bob Hawke, yeah. which was... The, well, he used that at every breakfast. Which one was it? Yeah, where he'd say, he'd say, the only thing you've ever done for the workers is... No, the only thing you've ever done for the workers... What was it's it? B1 of it's them. It's B1, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. And he, was, he was a funny man. And how is it speaking at a state funeral? Were you ushered into a room with... <coughs> with no, nah, look, I, you know, I mean, no, I, I had no idea. I just went there. I, I was living down in Rosebud at the time. I got myself booked into a, a hotel in the city, close to St Paul, well, in the city. I stayed the night there and um, I, rem- I, I, I rang up David White, who was a state minister in the Kane and Kerner government years, I ran a couple of things, especially the introduction where I might have sort of opened up with a bit of language. And uh, David said to me, he said, well, you don't, you know, you don't have to swear and, you know, and uh, he advised me there. So I... I curtailed the language, and, and really, Lou, Lou never really swore. I mean, he was a bloody, or that, you know, yeah. that's as much as you'd get out. And no, it wasn't really foul language. And then on the after I'd sort of finally done the final draft of the thing, I remember I sort of I sort of knew New Mitchell fairly well. Neil Mitchell. Neil Mitchell, throughout up here. And I thought I might just run the opening part past Neil and see what you know whether he thinks that I can get away with it, especially those introductory lines, and whether he thinks that I can get away with it. And back came the email at the hotel: "Don't change a word of it from from Neil." So, uh, so that gave me a bit of confidence. Yeah, that's oh, it's, a, it's a ripper opening. It really, it really made me laugh. Uh, what about delivery? Did you print it out big type and be able to? Yeah, scan? I did all that. Yeah. What are you? I try and sort of. I try where I've had to make a significant speech. I definitely try and get it out and then rehearse it and highlight the things that I want to emphasize. Uh, that I want to emphasize. Yeah, all all of that. And any time that I haven't done that, I've been a disaster. So there were plenty of disasters in my time at North where, you know, you didn't have time to prepare or you were off the cuff. I mean, I always marvelled at Alan Schwab. Schwabby could get up and talk off the cuff and um, a good speech off the top of his head, you know. And I admired that, but it was wasn't something that I couldn't do. I had to prepare and I had to have my notes and had to rehearse and I certainly did in uh, Lou's case yeah and so you would have had words highlighted that were your emphasis words yes, yes, and big type and double space big type you know if it was and and probably you know ten pages paragraphed, highlighted with text, yeah. Well, it came across beautifully, and you hit the nice bit at the end. You know, you're always going to have a that delve into your heart and say what you think at the end, and that, and that came out as really sincere and nice as well. Oh, that's great! Yeah, it's, it's a great so. speech, Ron. I'll, I'll um, we'll play it afterwards for people to enjoy, and you know, I, I think it should be remembered just as Lou should be. Thanks very much, Tony. Good to talk to you.
footy fans who are listening to this footy-themed speech. I'm a footy author. I wrote a book, 1989, The Great Grand Final. I'm told it's enjoyable not just to Hawthorne supporters, but particularly to Hawthorne supporters. Many Geelong people have bought the book, however. I've also written kids' footy books. They include A Boy Called Bob with Bob Murphy. It's kind of like a kid's how-to-become-an-AFL-footballer. And a series of four fictionalised childhoods of the Selwood Boys called The Selwood Boys. And you can find all my footy books and my other books at TonyWilsonAuthor.com. For the speech of the week, it is, of course, Ron Joseph's eulogy to Louis the Lip Richards, delivered at St Paul's Cathedral on the 17th of May, 2017. Um, Lou was right. Uh, He told me his farewell would be uh, bigger than Texas. He also told me that uh, I would have to speak at his funeral. All the other people I know are dead, he said. (laughs) You better start thinking about what you're going to say because it'll be a bloody big funeral. Harold Holt will have nothing on mine. I had a house down at Porty near him, you know. He didn't drown. He took off with the Sheila. <laughs> it will be a state funeral just like his. So that'll give Jack and Bobby Davis the shits. <laughs> if it's at St Paul's, they won't fit them in the joint. Don't let them have it at Jeff's shed. That's a cold hole, like Jeff. It will be a telecast around the world, around Australia. It might even be around the world. So you better be ready to talk on national television, Ronnie, and don't stuff it up. You're bloody lucky to get this opportunity, you know. No one else would give it to you. Tell Nicole and Kim to make sure that they get a good quid for the television rights. If seven are covering it, tell the girls to charge double. (laughs) Casey paid me bugger all for all the time I spent with him at 3DB and Channel 7. He was a good bloke, Case. Edna and I loved our time with Ron and Pauline, but he was tight, tight as a fisher. EJ's was a state funeral too. I'm bigger than Ted ever was. I nicknamed him Mr Football, and he believed it for the rest of his life. (laughs) I called Barassi Mrs Football too. Of all the blokes I've nicknamed over the years, Barassi is about the only one that ever lived up to his moniker. (laughs) And if that Mike Fitzpatrick's at my funeral, you know, the bloke who used to play for Carlton, the Rhodes Scholar, Rhodes Scholar, my bum, tell him I said that he spent too much time at Oxford and Cambridge and can't recognise a legend when he sees one. (laughs) So Lou leaves us after 94 marvellous years with memories that will last our lifetimes. There would be few people in this church that wouldn't have their own special story of Lou 
and his ability to warm up an event, a lunch or a dinner with laughter and fun. You could almost say that Blue knew it was expected of him. I remember as a young upstart at North in my early years having my first visit to Channel 7 and Ron Casey's World of Sport. Uncle Doug Elliott was presenting an ad for Ballantine's Chocolates, reading his lines off an idiot, idiot sheet, a piece of butcher paper held by two members of the Seven Camera Crew. Live on TV, Uncle Doug was halfway through his ad, staring intensely, glasses over his nose, reading the idiot sheet, when up came Lou and set the butcher paper alight. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Jack Dyer, Bob Davis, Neil Roberts, Skeeter Coglin, Bill Collins and Bruce Andrew fell around laughing. It took a stern Ron Casey to get World of Sport back on track. And who could ever forget the Phoenix Hotel? As legendary as the Flinders Street Herald Sun building alongside. Sir Henry Winnicky was a Victorian governor in the 70s and after a VFL dinner at the Southern Cross, Lou invited him back to his hotel for a drink. Sir Henry, the great man that he was, obliged. When I made it back to Lou's pub at one in the morning, there was the Rolls Royce, number plates Vic 1, double parked in Flinders Street outside the Phoenix. Upstairs, Sir Henry was the centre of attention. When Lou came up and asked him if he'd mind staying because Edna wouldn't believe that royalty had visited his hotel and he wanted Edna to meet him. Lou was gone for five minutes and then reappeared. Governor, he said, Sir Henry, Your Excellency, I never know what to call you, but Edna's in bed upstairs, she's got rollers in her hair and she said to tell you that she shouldn't, couldn't care if you're the King of England, she's not coming down to meet you. What a beautiful marriage Lou shared with Edna. They were inseparable. They shared a wonderful marriage and friendship. When Edna went into care, Lou didn't leave the bedside. When Lou died last week, he had endured 3,350 days without her. It was only after Edna had gone that you could get Lou out for a coffee, a lunch, a footy match or a drive in the car. He could still laugh. There were some special events, his 90th birthday at Kim's, the unveiling of Lou's statue at Collingwood, but his darling Edna had left his life. You knew that deep down, all Lou was ever thinking was, where's Edna? Having read, observed and listened to all the glowing tributes that have been printed and aired on radio and TV since last week, it's easy to overlook the depth of the man himself. Character on the footy field as a tough, take-no-prisoners captain and a character off as a person with a rare knockabout charm and sense of fun, as well as a generosity of spirit and a strong sense of doing the right thing. 
The National Trust in 1982 went as far as classifying Lou as a national treasure. But Lou is much, much more than that. First and foremost, he was a devoted husband, father and grandfather, brother to Ron and Glenis and uncle. And regardless of all the fame that came his way, Edna, Nicole, Kim, with the grandkids, were always his pride and priority. How lucky were we at North? Shirley Trainer, the wife of our 60s President Tony, was a close personal friend of Edna. They were best friends. Inevitably, the Trainer family introduced Lou with Edna to a football club that wore blue and white, not black and white stripes. After some hits and misses in the early 70s, North started to get its show on the road. They were, they were heady days. Fundraisers and functions that rolled from one week to the next, and Lou was always there. People attended just to be in the room with him. Six successive grand finals, and in 1975, the inaugural premiership, then the famous draw and replay of 1977. The VFL competition, was on its way to being a national competition. The grand final was televised live and in colour and Ron Casey and Lou Richards led the way. For 40 years, Lou would be up on grand final day at 6am to host North's grand final breakfast that through his brilliance became its own institution. Lou would then leave the Southern Cross to call the grand final with Mike Williamson or Peter Landy. Prime Minister Hawke never missed one of those breakfasts and Lou never missed giving, him his, giving the PM his famous line, Bob, the only thing you haven't done for the workers is become one. <laughs> with Alan Aylett, Albert Mantello and Ron Barassi, it seemed that Lou was also a part of the executive team at North as well. Lou loved his involvement and North loved him back. Of all of the, out of all of this grew great friendships like Shirley's and Edna's that stood the test of time. It would be wrong to say that North was the only beneficiary of Lou's generosity. Lou had friends at every club and he delighted in helping them all with his presence and star quality. Today, we say farewell. Lou is a legend. Who else gets an eight-page wraparound in Melbourne's Herald Sun that is as much a part of this city as Lou and the MCG? Lou might not have kicked as many goals as Tony Lockett or Peter Hudson, but he is a legend. Lou might not have won as many Brownlow medals as Hayden Bunton, Bob Skilton, Dick Reynolds and Ian Stewart but he is a legend. And if his game as a player was just a little short of the class of the great EJ or the dynamic Ron Barassi, Lou is still a legend. In fact, Lou is bigger than a legend. Decency, loyalty, gentleness, warmth, kindness, integrity, humility, cheat and fun, all in equal parts, gave us Lou Richards. Our love and thoughts are with Kim and Nicole and their families. 
Their loss first with Edna and now with Lou is immeasurable. I thank them for the honour of speaking here today. I thank them for sharing Lou with us. And on behalf of all of us and our marvellous sport, I thank Lou for all that he gave. We remember Lou with affection, admiration, gratitude and delight. <laughs>